This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. I'm excited for today's show. We're going to be talking about the racism of language. And as I thought about this subject, it was actually a listener that brought this to my attention. In fact, I was sent a picture of a textbook from a grade 12 class that talks about terms such as a black hole or referring to words like a black hole as a racist term. We're going to get into that in a moment and more of those questions and different words that are used in our culture and whether or not those are racist and what we can learn from this conversation. And as I was thinking, who who to have on the show to talk on this, I immediately thought of my friend, Lindsay Brooks. Now, Lindsay and I go way back, something over 10 years ago, we were on the apologetics.com radio show together in Los Angeles. So this is a bit of a reunion. Uh, Lindsay, welcome to the show. It's absolutely my pleasure to hang out with you again, Andy. Do you remember those shows? Those apologetics.com days are like the golden memory of my past and, <laughs> and uh, all the friends that I made through apologetics.com, Nice Wonger, Rich Park, all those guys. They're still like nearest and dearest. And, and uh, you know, getting to know you was an incredible blessing. It's funny you should say that because I, I've got to start the show by letting you know of what a blessing you've been in my life. And I, I don't know if I've fully ever actually expressed this to you. But when I was asked to come on to the apologetics.com radio show, I remember showing up and I still, I can vividly remember the day that I showed up. You were hosting that show. I remember sitting there thinking, this Lindsay Brooks might just be one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. I have no business being on this radio show. And one day, and one day I want to be like this guy. Like, honestly, man, you, you were an inspiration to me. Wow, dude, I'm feeling very humbled right now. And thanks be to God that I haven't screwed it up yet. <laughs> uh, people, th- some things people need to know about you. So I'll, I'll say a few things here and then, then you can add on to this. Uh, now, you were in Los Angeles. Now you're in Philadelphia. You are not only an apologist, not only an incredible thinker, but you're also a professional musician. I am. First thing got set up when I moved to this apartment was the piano. (laughs) Yeah. So you're at the University of Pennsylvania at Gregory House. Tell us a little bit about that. Also, tell us about the the Philadelphians as well. Yeah. Well, um, my wife is a um, language scholar and a pedagogy scholar, which means she cares very much about how people learn. And a lot of her research is about inclusive pedagogy, which is something that we'll probably bump into today in, in this discussion. And so she's here at the University of Pennsylvania doing inclusive pedagogy work at the Center for Teaching and Learning. 
through that position, we became sort of faculty administrators at Gregory House, which is, you know, you guys probably call them dormitories or something, right? This is, this is where students and graduate students live, and then we run programs to enhance their, their living situation in their life. So uh, language programs and film programs and music. And so this is how we got to do this work. But The Philadelphians is a video, podcast, blog, all kinds of stuff. We're, we're trying to figure out how to focus everything into one sort of brand. Uh, but The Philadelphians is based on Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, because you've been faithful, I will open a door for you that none can shut. And uh, he said, I know that you have but little power, right? So both of those things resonated with me, like, hmm, like I talk and who listens, right? But, <laughs> but I have to speak faithfully. And so the question that we're trying to answer with the Philadelphians is, what does it look like to be a Christian in public? All of our public life. One of the things that we care about is that, that Christianity really does affect all areas of life. So what does it look like in the commonality of our engagement with the world. And that's what the Philadelphians does and, and cares about. Well, I think that that's a, a great segue into the discussion that we want to have today with regards to racism. Now, as you know, my doctoral work touches on dehumanization, particularly pre and post World War II, and the ways in which words had a powerful effect on shaping culture, but not only that, but shaping the violence that took place and how that violence is able to take place, especially on, on a mass scale when we think about things like genocide. How are these sorts of things made possible? And what you find is that language is, is key, is the way in which you talk about people. And one of the things that, that I often talk about is when you dehumanize, when, when you speak about somebody as less than human, and then things that you once thought were incomprehensible, such as slavery or torture or genocide, all of a sudden become quite possible and, in fact, very easy to do because you're no longer looking at a human being any longer. You're looking at something less than. And that's, that's very much the way I'm I've, you know, academically looked at that in the journals that I've read and the different studies that I've come across. But now I'm getting introduced into these ideas of, of racism that are quite foreign to me. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. And in our culture today, quite frankly, Lindsay would say that I have no business speaking on this subject because of things like white fragility and, and again, concepts that are quite new to me that, as I'm sure many of my listeners or many of the listeners of have been coming across themselves in a culture that's really reshaping the conversation, perhaps in some ways for the better and some, in some ways for the worse. And that's what I, what I want to get into with you today is, is to help me to think through that. Now, maybe just a, a, a way just to even start here, Lindsay is, I mean, our culture is so bifurcated these days that we don't even know how to talk about each other. Is it okay to refer to me as a white guy? Is it okay for me to refer to you as a black guy? I think we ought to talk about that because those terms are super important. Yeah. So help me out on that. What are your thoughts? I mean, what I'm going to be giving you is, is sort of a preview of, of a book that I'm authoring. And it has to do with that language. And I'm, I'm going to borrow from a lot of scholars like with terms like black and white, I think there's an incredible amount 
of equivocation. And that equivocation is not limited to the common vernacular. It's endemic in academic work on whiteness studies and things like that. The people who we would expect to be the most careful with this language often actually switch quite easily back and forth between a very technical idea of what these things mean to just the common usage, things like skin color or whatever. I tend to use words like people of European descent or people with a European heritage or something like that, partially because white is very loaded, but also because almost nobody knows what it means, like apart from like having light skin. Why, so, why are you white and I'm not white? That's an incredibly important question. And we should poke at that a little bit because mm. I'm German and Scott's Irish. Mm. And I fully allow myself to claim that heritage. So what, why aren't I white? You know, a Steiger, that sounds German to me, maybe Austrian, I'm not sure. It's definitely German. However, this is where things always get interesting because our backgrounds are, are so fractured in so many different ways. So for me, I'm adopted. My stepfather adopted me. My birth name is Termba, which is Czechoslovakian. And so that's my background. Uh, that's awesome. So I wonder, like, if you think back to the generations of Turnbaws who, who emigrated to the United States or to Canada, in your case, I always have to, like, check myself there because <laughs> do you think that they intended for you to abandon your Czech heritage such that you call yourself white and not hmm. Czech? Right. What's the difference between white and Czech? Because Czechoslovakia is a place, and it has a language, and it has many languages, actually, probably, and, and it has this long, deep heritage of relationship to the Slavic peoples where we get this incredible Kyrillic alphabet, and there's such an incredible, rich cultural history. Mm. Uh, so it's a real people. What you're getting at, though, I think is a really important point. Take somebody like myself as an example. I love traveling and I love people. I love people groups. I love I love understanding culture. And I can already see that as you're talking. You you appreciate that, whether that be the language or the history or whatever it might be. But in today's culture, it's become rude, though, to ask me or for me to ask you what your cultural background is. Sure. Uh, you know, I remember there was a kind of a viral YouTube thing of a woman who was getting ready to run and a guy who came up to her and was like, so, you know, like, where are you from? And because she looked typically Asian. And so therefore, what do you mean by that? Why, why do we feel compelled to ask the, the woman who looks Asian, whatever that means? And we should talk about that too, because Asian is kind of a made up category, where she's from. Uh, now, here's one of the problems and one of the things I was trying to get at there is that race, I believe that race is socially constructed in the main. And so, as we talk about white and black in relationship to, you know, standpoints about, you know, well, what are you? I, I feel a need to categorize you for some reason as, you know, you're the Asian guy or you're the black guy or all of that stuff. 
I think we kind of got to try to get a handle on what on earth we mean. If what you mean is what scientists call phenotypical expression, right? The color of your skin, the shape of your eyes, the width of your nose, the fullness of your lips. Well, we kind of know where people from certain places tend to look like, and there's tons of exceptions to the rule, and there's all kinds of genetic variation within those racial categories that are sometimes broader than between social uh, those uh, racial categories. Uh, so I would approach this maybe a little bit differently and start to ask ourselves what what we think we mean by those things. So that, look, the reason I care about where you're from and who your people are is because it says a lot about maybe things you might've been taught and things I might've been taught that we can get together on and I can learn to love you better, hmm. right? I love you by knowing you. That's right. It's really hard to love someone you don't know. Yeah. So there's, and, there, there's, there's that Christian aspect, there. but we're not going to, we're not going to go into that blindly thinking, oh, okay, well, here's a person and they have a certain phenotypical expression. So I have to be careful because as you, in your work, I'm sure you know very well, better than me, that people were dehumanized because of their phenotypical expressions. Do you know what's interesting though about that, that I wanted to bring up? is that you're absolutely correct that that has occurred. However, it's not always been that way, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, when we go back to the philosophical arguments that people like Aristotle would make, they weren't made on race. They were actually made much more on the the level of intelligence, on the conquered and the non-conquered, whether or not you were of a lesser human being, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, um, actually, there's a work by Geraldine Hang. She's a medievalist at one of the Texas universities. If she ever watches this, I hope she forgives me for forgetting where she is. Um, where she talks about the invention of, or at least the roots of whiteness, and what people call white, in the Middle Ages. And it's really the roots because we didn't quite have race as we understand it yet. We just had people from places, right? But what she talks about, and I'm not finding my quote right now, but I'll try to do this from memory. What she talks about is there's this poem about Moses where Moses is white. Now, there's not a racial category here, but there's these other people whose skin is dark, and they kiss Moses' staff and they become white. Well, what's being communicated in this is nobility and virtue. So white in the Middle Ages, nobility, as in royalty, has this, has this moral standing and a color associated with that moral standing and that color is white. So this becomes the language that in colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade and all of this become sort of codified into what we think of as race. Race is a moving target and it always has been and it still is. Hmm. But here's the thing, like, what does this have to do with whether or not you get to ask me where I'm from? Well, it just means that we are situated in something that started hundreds of years before us it's not an eternal thing. It's certainly not in the Bible. Bible doesn't talk about 
races in that sense. We don't even have the word race in the Bible in that sense. We have, you know, goy and we have ethnos and and those mean peoples. Maybe the closest you would have is the way the Jews referred to the Samaritans as half-breeds with regards to the Jewish line pre and post sure, captivity. Sure, but that's still national and familial. And, Correct. And it doesn't rise above the taxonomy of the national and familial to this idea of race that's just bigger. It's a step yeah. up in the taxonomical ladder of categorizations of people. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. Uh, pe- the Bible knows about people from places with languages that produce culture and have a cult. That's the biblical definition. If you go back to Genesis 10 and 11, Table of Nations in 10 and, and Tower of Babel and, and what comes after that in Shem, Ham and Japheth and their children and where they spread off to. It was all about family lines. See, this is why I always think that dehumanization is such an important aspect to keep in mind when we talk on these things, because in human brokenness, this is what we tend to do. We tend to, especially what I see within with regards to racism, is where we want to make a, another race as less than. And you can potentially find yourself where you're trying to make yourself more than. But what we're talking about here, though, is people that are born and steeped in a culture that then, if we bring this conversation to words, uh, is then saying that, okay, you've been born into a a racist culture that has been in this history of using these sorts of, you know, language in these sorts of ways, which raises important questions then. Now, I would be of the opinion, Lindsay, that there are certain words that are absolutely racist and are absolutely deplorable and should not be used. I don't know if people have read much Karl Marx, but that man was incredibly racist and one of the most creative in his racial terms that were truly horrendous. But you can't help but think, man, has our society just gone way too far and is now creating problems where there wasn't one? I'm curious to get your opinion on this, because I I got some stuff I think we need to talk about here. And and one of those being, as I said at the very beginning, words like a black hole is, and maybe I should just preface this by what was sent to me from a listener from a, a grade 12 textbook that's being used currently in Canada that says this, the language we use tells us about our society and perpetuates certain beliefs. For example, white is represented as positive and black is negative. And this is pervasive in our culture. Good guys wear white hats and ride white horses. Bad guys wear black hats and ride black horses. Angels wear white and have white wings, while devils wear black and have black wings. Angel food cake is white and devil's food cake is brown. The definition of black includes without any moral light or goodness, evil, wicked, indicating disgrace, sinful, while that of white includes morally pure, spotless, innocent, free from evil. White, as the dominant group in North America, are not subjected to the same abusive characterization by our language that people of color, particularly black people, receive. And then says, read the following excerpt to see the many negative connotations we have about black in our language. So I'll just, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just give you here the words that are are identified. Blackly, blacken, black eye, black words, denigrate, black hearted, black outlook, black guard, black mark, black brow, black cat, black deed, black sheep, 
black labeled, blacklist, blackmail, blackjack, dark times, black hole, black and white, white night, black day. That's about it. Well, we've got, a, I think, a battle between, I think, maybe some legitimate stuff and some stuff that, you know, it sounds crazy because it's probably crazy. Right? Um, so Shakespeare, if virtue no delighted beauty lack, your son-in-law is more fair than black. Hmm. Racist, right? You're more fair than black because virtue. And who are we talking about? We're talking about the Moor of Venice. We're talking about Othello, the black character, presumably, right? I mean, it could have been lighter or darker, but there's a range, right? Uh, There's a good chance that the Moors that Shakespeare knew about weren't that dark. But certainly there's a play there on what was what Geraldine Hank points out was that medieval idea of virtue and class that are tied together, you see? So do we not teach Othello anymore? There's all kinds of reasons to teach Othello, right? It's maybe the greatest play ever written. But we got a problem here in understanding what we mean by Black and how that presents itself in a post-racial culture. Because the Pandora's box of race has been opened. It was codified in law. It was gelled into our social imaginary by propaganda. And so much so that you think of yourself as white and think of me as black because of our phenotypical expression. So we are a post-racial situation. Race has happened. So now that it's happened, what about this language? Well, some stuff matters but some stuff doesn't. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, she's a theoretical physicist. She's working on dark matter and she's working on axions, which is this theorized particle that makes dark matter happen. And she is making the point that, you know, look, dark matter is kind of a misnomer, actually. It's not dark, it's transparent. Mm -hmm. Light goes through it, assuming it really exists and we need something to account for all the mass in the universe. Right? So we, we have this particle that contributes somehow to mass, but not affecting light. So it's transparent. It's not dark. She has a gripe though, with the language used for quarks, right? Quarks are, are given this, this colored language. It's so it's colored science. And, uh, Her argument is that at the time that that came about, in the 1960s, colored had meanings and connotations that were offensive. And that had there been physicists from the African-American community or African physicists or whatever, that we probably wouldn't have gone with colored We probably would have actually come up with some other way of talking about up quarks and such. Well, that's entirely speculative. And I, I don't know if her books come out yet. I've only read the interviews. But the interviews 
don't present any reason for me to think that the social upheavals of colored only drinking fountains and such have anything to do with whether or not we use color designations as a way to talk about porks. Before we continue, a message from Andy. With Giving Tuesday coming on December 2nd, I wanted to give a quick update on our Double Your Impact campaign and ask you to consider supporting the work of Apologetics Canada. From now until December 31st, an anonymous donor is matching all donations up to $100,000. As of the recording of this podcast, we are currently 51% of the way to our goal. So I just wanted to thank all of you that have donated. It means so much to us. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at apologeticscanada.com backslash donate. As well, I wanted to encourage you that if you would like to go deeper in the subject of racism and dehumanization, check out my new book, Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. And now, back to the podcast. Because really what you're getting at here, Lindsay, is what is the intent of the word? What, what is the meaning? How, how is it being used? Intent has something to do with it. Sure. You know, I mean, because in, in as much as we can know intent or intuit it, it has something to do with it. But it's because not because here's the Here's the thing that I find interesting about saying, okay, like the term black hole is racist because it's black hole that light can't escape. But yet what's not uh, at the same time brought into uh, the discussion is that there's also white holes. So then you have black holes and you have the reverse of that, which is a white hole. This then raises the question, I think, of, you know, is that actually being racist? I mean, it goes both ways. So, you know, let me let me ask you, Lindsay, is, is the term or do you think the term black hole is racist? I don't. I don't think it had anything to do with our social imaginary of race. Um, I, I think that this color language in science has, um, it's not necessary. You could certainly find other ways to talk about it. And NASA, and I would point people to the NASA website on this, uh, nasa.gov, uh, it has uh, NASA to re-examine nicknames of cosmic objects. And I think, look, you know, when it comes to nicknames, a black hole is just a nickname. We're not talking about a black hole. We're talking about a singularity, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So if in the scientific community, we call it the singularity and in common parlance, we call it the black hole, you know, does it necessarily have to be called that? Well, no, it kind of doesn't. Is it racist? No, it's probably not. Uh, however, we are in a time where people that we talk to have all kinds of sensitivities. Being aware that that's just the fact of where we are and that you got to be careful with your language. It's a fact. I can't change it by giving you my opinion that I think that black holes is not a racist statement or dark matter is not a racist statement or devil's food cake because it's brown is racist. It's not. It's an ancient light-dark dichotomy. You're going to have to deal with the Bible on that because it talks in those terms. Now, I have two warring factions in me. One is that I'm American and you can't tell me what to say. (laughs) The other is that I'm a Christian and 
I am to esteem other people as more important than me. That's a command. And that I am to season every word with salt, making the best use of the time. Because why am I talking to you? Am I talking to you because I care whether you say singularity or black hole? Frankly, I don't care. What I care about is you. I love you. So if insisting on using the term black hole is going to make me not be able to talk to you, then that's just me disobeying my Lord. The closest thing to a picture of God that you have is the person that you are talking to. I completely agree with you that we want to be sensitive to people. And my desire isn't to unnecessarily provoke somebody. Now, being that it's Thanksgiving and Black Friday is fast approaching, it's one of the reasons why we wanted to have this show and wanted to have this conversation to talk on how language is being used. Because it's interesting to me that, you know, we're talking here about light and dark, but it doesn't always follow that same dichotomy. For example, Black Friday is often argued by retailers, at least, that it's a positive term going from being in the red financially to being in the black, referring literally to pen color. But it's interesting, you know, that it actually it's, it's really interesting that you've moved to Philadelphia as it's historically argued that Black Friday was coined by the police there that dreaded the traffic and the tourists. Apparently there's an Army Navy football game that happened and just the busyness of shoppers that came the day after Thanksgiving. So in that way, black was actually being used negatively. And of course, it also goes back even further than that. Because it derives from the stock market crash on Black Friday that led to the Great Depression, right? So we've taken that name for Black Friday where everybody's money was gone and dudes were throwing themselves out of windows. And we're like, even now it's been a hundred years. <laughs> and even now I'm like too soon, right? <laughs> too soon. You know, too soon. Like that was a horrifying time. Uh, and now we've turned it into almost a holiday. Like you get to buy stuff today on Black Friday. It's a little icky just on that. But, you know, uh, does Black Friday have to do with the racial social imaginary? I do not think that it does. And I have not read a single argument to convince me that it does. The way the argument is usually framed is a matter of situated standpoint. It's how does the word sound to Black people? Right. So when we talked earlier about colored science, you know, and how would that sound to black physicists? Well, that's a speculative kind of way to talk about these things because it doesn't sound at all like it rings weird. But I remember reading this interview with Prescott Weinstein and the interview was like, colored science. Wow. Like that's so obviously like bad. I don't think that it is. Now, there's two things that I, I wanted to talk about here. And maybe the first is I, I just want to get your actual experience growing up in a culture that people would say you're, you're, 
growing up in, in an oppressive language. Would you have agreed with that? H- had you ever thought of it in those terms? There is oppressive language, the whole N-word thing. I've been called all kinds of stuff. I grew up in the Midwest, and the Midwest, it got off the hook a lot because, you know, the South, right? There's supposed to be all the racists down there, but yeah, there's, <laughs> I got called more kinds of stuff in Iowa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, there there is some oppressive language. Um, is Othello oppressive language to me? It's not. And I don't know of any sort of honest way to approach that and say that it is. I can say maybe, okay, let's, let's say from the standpoint of someone who might be teaching junior high, high school or high schoolers who have no reason not to impose their own schema onto Shakespeare, right? It's going to need some explanation. It's 400 years old, for goodness sake. <laughs> There's all kinds of language that we have to explain. Yeah, it's English, but English changes in 50 years, much less 400. And the social imaginary changed. We are now racialized. You're reading it from a racialized view, and I have to actually educate you. I know, that's crazy, right? How dare us actually teach people that there's context. But we have to do that. So is that going to be part of our conversation in STEM subjects like, you know, whether or not we're t- we say black holes? Believe me, like Aunt Jemima, right, was a big thing recently. Yeah. Because Aunt Jemima was taken off the box. Because, look, Aunt Jemima started out as this mammy trope in the 1800s that people used to sell pancake mix and syrups. And then it evolved and there was, there's a whole cast of black women who played Aunt Jemima in real life. And then, and then the image changed from the, the old mammy to the new mammy. And then you got rid of the mammy and you took off her headscarf and gave her, you know, Michelle Obama hair or something. And, and that, the whole thing changed and then they took it off the box and, and all of a sudden there's a whole contingent of people going, Oh, Aunt Jemima, you know, our sacred cow is gone. I don't care. I'm making pancakes for goodness sake. It's gone. It was a terribly racist thing. It was a trope about this, this mammy character who cooked and cleaned and and uh, you can see it in cartoons back in, in the 40s when they're making cartoons and blackface big lips and a headscarf and chasing after people with a rolling pin and you know what i mean like mm. yeah of course it was racist it it was part of the the warp and woof of a racist society of a raced and racist society sure Do I care that that image is gone now? Not at all. And the people who were like, oh, you can't even have Mammy on on your pancake box anymore are a little ridiculous. Yeah, so there is some serious stuff that we, you know, it's okay that it's gone. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. We we have those moments where we have cultural baggage where we realize, hey, you know what? Actually, we can do to change this. So this this is a move in the in the right direction. For one, I, well, that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you is just to say, to, you know, just for me even to think, okay, hey, listen, am I am I not being sensitive? Is there areas? You know where language is is offensive that I'm unaware of that I could learn from and and as we've been talking about that I could communicate more carefully and and clearly with the part that I start to get concerned with though is when a culture begins to redefine terms begins to redefine words because I think we also have to be careful that you can weaponize any word and I think a great example of this is in 2012 when a police officer in New Hampshire was was fired for referring to a member of the Boston Red Sox as a, as a Monday. Now, the word Monday has become a, a racial slur. From what I understand, it's because nobody likes Monday. And to refer to somebody as a Monday is to put them down. It's one of those things where it's like, well, then, you know, Monday can be used with that intent that I think is is wrong and shouldn't be used in that way. The, I guess the challenge then becomes, what happens when you're using words that you have not weaponized, you're not using them with negative intents, and you had... You had sometimes your intent matters, and sometimes it does not. So, look... If I'm going to have a meeting with a bunch of pastors and we're going to have a powwow where we're going to circle the wagons and I have no idea <laughs> whether there are any native peoples in that group at all. Yeah, I'm probably being a jerk even if I have no intent to be a jerk. I don't intend to be a jerk. I'm just being one. Happens all the time. So what have I done? I've kind of expunged those expressions from my language and it's okay. Mm. I have lost absolutely nothing in the expunging of those. But um, am I going to expunge dark matter? Well, maybe not yet because it's, (laughs) it's so commonly used that if I start talking about transparent matter, no one except Shonda Prescott Weinstein is going to know what I'm talking about. In common vernacular, am I going to say black holes? Probably. If there's a reason that I'm using singularity instead, because it's more of the technical term, it's actually, you know, all these terms, they're science. So it's, these are going to change, but they're not changing in the popular imagination today. So I'll probably use it. Is it going to offend a black physicist if I say black hole? I doubt it. But look, this actually is not a bad exercise. Should I look at my language that I use? Let's say I write a sermon. Should I go through the sermon maybe and see if I'm saying something that is is really going to step in a pile? Yeah, of course I should. I should actually have this discipline all the time. And in a way we do. Because I had to learn not to swear on the radio. Right. It was part of my vernacular when I started doing radio and I had to check myself because I'm not Howard Stern and I will and I don't ever intend to be. Mm. So there's there's a positive side in that we we really do need to, to adopt as a discipline of being aware of our environment and aware of our moment in history and make the best use of the time seasoning every word. 
which means Christians are commanded to be careful with our words. Is there stuff that goes too far? Yeah. But how are you going to fix that? Are you going to fix that by... Probably not. You have to persuade. Well, maybe this is a good place for us to wrap up here. And I think one thing that's just really come out of this conversation is, you know, there, there are these moments that you're going to get frustrated in culture and you're going to be like, man, this seems insane here. But one of the things I, I really hear you saying is, hey, keep the big picture in mind. We're, we're focused on the gospel. And how do we communicate in a culture most effectively so that people give the gospel a hearing? There's, there's stuff that we say that matters for how we communicate the gospel. Uh, I was listening to a Philadelphia pastor, Eric Mason, who's the author of a book called Woke Church. And you know that word, it's a trigger word now for an entire generation of evangelicals, right? Uh, because now woke church means you're ordaining a trans person as a minister of the gospel or something, right? But that's not, that's not what woke church means to him. He took woke from the community he serves. And he turned it into a word that, that says, look, we can believe the gospel and be totally aware of history <laughs> and totally aware of the racial social imaginary. Isn't this the sad state of affairs, Lindsay, is that uh, even in this conversation, it can become fuel to divide each other? Look, Andy, I belong to you. We belong to one another. Brothers in Christ. the body of Christ. So, if you are offended because I say the word woke in relationship to the church, and you're not, you're too smart for that, but let's let's say that you would be, right? <laughs> Um, am I going to kind of be like, am I going to defend saying woke too much? Well, maybe a little, I might make a little bit of an apologetic for it, but, but if it still bothers you, I have the utter freedom to just lay that word down and we can talk about the concepts without the words so that we both can agree that the Bible says X, you know, but Hey, listen, as we close off here. Uh, how can people get to know more about you, your ministry? Where would you send them? www.thephiladelphians.com All right. That is the best bet. Friend me up on Facebook. I'm, I'm very approachable. I'll argue with you. It'll be great. <laughs> What's the worst that can hey. happen? And if you like Star Wars, and particularly The Mandalorian, you got a brother in Christ here. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We can go a long way down the road on the Star Wars train, my brother. <laughs> Lindsay, it's great having you on the show. Pleasure. Pleasure being with you today. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to the AC Podcast. We'll be back next week with more things to think about. Thank you.